All right. Well, welcome everyone back mm. to uh, the Texan Reformers, the uh, Christian Texan Reformers. We're still working on the name a little bit here, uh, but this is the formerly Texan and Reformed podcast. We are back um, after a little bit of a hiatus. Um, my name is Caleb Maltby. Uh, I am your host. Um, and to uh, my right, uh, or my uh, right here on the screen here, is my co-host, uh, Pastor Carl Miller of uh, New Braunfels Orthodox Presbyterian Church, otherwise known as Heritage Presbyterian Church. Uh, Carl, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, Caleb. Uh, it's great to be back together again after some time and good to be with our brothers here. Amen. Yeah. Uh, well, we're looking forward to this discussion for sure. And we're going to jump into some discussing some uh, some great books of the uh, of the church that have been written uh, that uh, say something that could be helpful and edifying to the church. Um, and to do that, uh, I brought some guests with us today. Uh, I'll start uh, with uh, the person who is below me, metaphorically speaking, on the Zoom call, uh, James J. Cassidy. Jim Cassidy, how are you doing? Okay, good. I'm I'm just glad that you didn't say I was to the left of you because uh, <laughs> I'm not in this podcast anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're glad to have you. Jim is the uh, the pastor up in South Austin Presbyterian uh, Church, uh, which is the church that is uh, our mother church, or the ones that, uh, that planted uh, New Braunfels OPC. Uh, so they have been a boon to us in that. Um, and then diagonally from me, which is this way for you, um, is uh, my, uh, uh, to make things not super complicated, my brother-in-law, Will O'Brien. Will, how are you doing? I'm good. Honored to be here. Excited for a good discussion. Good, good. Yes, me too. Very good. All right. Well, the book that we're discussing today um, is uh, J. Gresham Machen's Christianity and Liberalism. Christianity and Liberalism. Um, and I know uh, that uh, some people, the way they like to do books is to tackle them all at once. Uh, but I, I like to take it slow. And I thought we would take it slow uh, doing this way. Uh, so we'll take it a chapter at a time. We're only going to do the first chapter today. Um, and if you've read Machen, uh, you know that that's enough. Uh, they will have plenty of content uh, to talk about that tonight um, here as we just dive into his, uh, what he calls his introduction in chapter one. Um, and uh, But before we get really um, into the content of what uh, Machen uh, uh, talks about here in chapter one, uh, maybe it's, it's good to have a little bit of context um, and of where, where he's coming from, uh, why he wrote this book. Um, and that's, uh, of course, why I have uh, uh, my good friend Jim Cassidy here, so I can ask him, Jim, uh, what was going on in the 1920s, and who was this Machen character, and why should someone maybe who's not even in the OPC care about this Machen character? Yeah, well, <clears throat> that's a great question. Um, just a little bit of historical backdrop. So uh, Machen was a Southerner. Um, he was uh, born, at, I believe, if I have this correct, uh, in Macon, Georgia. And, uh, or I think his family is from Macon, Georgia, and he was actually born in the Baltimore area. That's, if, if I'm correct, uh, that's the proper biography. He was raised in the, in the Presbyterian Church and the mainline Presbyterian Church. He was catechized by his mother as he was growing up in the faith. And so he was well-established in the faith from the earliest days. 
he had a sense of a call to the ministry, uh, although that was something that he was conflicted uh, over for many years before he finally got ordained, but he did attend uh, Princeton Theological Seminary. That is sort of the last of the of the glory years of what we call Old Princeton. And Old Princeton is generally understood Princeton before 1929 when the board was reorganized at the seminary along modernist or liberal lines. Um, Machen uh, did further study in Germany after he graduated. Uh, he was at this time conflicted about whether or not to proceed towards ordination. Uh, he was going through some, um, you know, just sort of self-examination and an internal kind of examination with the Lord. Um, he had also served over in Europe during World War I. Um, and he did so, I believe, with the uh, YMCA, if I have that correct, uh, which at that time uh, uh, helped to, was sort of a paramilitary organization that would help out with, um, you know, the help the soldiers, support the soldiers. Uh, and he sold cigarettes uh, <laughs> on front lines over in Europe and, and wrote quite a bit about the war and about war in general and just how much he absolutely despised war and all the horrible things he had seen and heard while he was over there. Uh, but he also uh, studied in Germany. And when he studied in Germany, he had somewhat of a, uh, a short-lived crisis of faith, kind of, in the sense that he was quite taken away with the liberal professors that he studied under. Uh, he was overwhelmed by their piety. Uh, these men uh, had, had deep reverence on the outside anyway for the things of God. And he was quite taken with that. And perhaps that was something he was struggling with existentially himself. And so uh, after, of course, studying, he came to understand where the profound differences were between liberalism and the Reformed faith, which he was nurtured in, particularly with regard to understanding the nature of scripture. Um, scripture and um, historical studies and um, historical critical studies, particularly historical critical studies of the Bible. And uh, so when he returned, when he came back here to stateside, he, uh, he was offered a position at, at Princeton Seminary to be a professor. Um, and so he joined the faculty there at Princeton. And of course, it was during that time in the early 20th century when liberalism was really becoming uh, a force to be reckoned with within the churches here in America and in the Presbyterian church in particular. And so he began, as he saw uh, the problems of liberalism, uh, he began to write against liberalism, write against liberal theology, and uh, even uh, 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 criticizing the church and some of the actions that it took. Uh, he was a member of the Presbytery of New Brunswick in New Jersey. Uh, and after he formed the Independent Board for Foreign Missions, which was a protest board, it was an independent board for Presbyterian Foreign Missions, uh, he was brought up on charges by his presbytery. He was tried and then eventually 
divested um, or defrocked at, uh, after his appeal was heard and denied by the General Assembly. And so uh, after that, he went, uh, him and a number of other elders and ministers formed the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, then called the PCA, the original PCA, uh, the Presbyterian Church of America. Um, and uh, that, of course, changed later when it, we were sued by the PCUSA uh, because our name apparently was too close to theirs, PCA, PCA. Uh, and of course, the PCUSA never sued the current PCA, but anyway, that's a whole other story. Um, you could tell there, there, was, there was some bad blood that was there. Um, but particularly with regard to, we need to focus on, for this book, I think, uh, the, what is called the Auburn Affirmation, uh, which was a document signed by a number of liberal ministers throughout the denomination. And I don't, re I don't remember exactly the number, but I, it was over a thousand. I know that. I mean, there were quite a few signatures to the Auburn Affirmation. And the Auburn Affirmation uh, basically said that there are a lot of things that our church currently holds as necessary, but really ought to be regarded as theories um, and opinions and sort of non-essentials, things like the substitutionary atonement of Christ, um, the historical nature of the gospel narratives, uh, the inerrancy of scripture, things like this were at stake and criticized as negotiables uh, within the Presbyterian church. And of course that set off a firestorm of reaction and response and Machen was very much a part of that. Now um, he writes this book in part as uh, sort of his um, uh, manifesto about what he thinks about liberalism and why liberalism is very different than the Christian faith that Machen grew up with and was currently a professor of at Princeton Seminary. And we'll, we'll talk about it as we go along, but, and not to spoil the surprise, but most of us kind of know this already, the title is very consequential, right? Christianity mm -hmm. and liberalism. That's not, that and is not a, an and of of um, conjunction or identification or, or even overlap or relation, it's a it's a it's a it's a conjunction of disjunction, uh, if you will, or opposition and antithesis. Uh, Machen's whole point is that upon a fair examination of what liberalism is, that it actually bears no resemblance whatsoever to modernism. And I'm going to use throughout our discussion here, there's a reason why I'm going to use the term modernism as opposed to liberalism. And part of the reason why is because it's a term that he mentions in the first chapter. It was a term that uh, was synonymous with liberalism. And what I like about the term is that it is broader than liberalism itself. Modernism encapsulates a number of things. It's almost too broad in some, some senses. Um, but I'd like to use it because today, what I would want to contend is today in the church here in America anyway, just because that's what I'm familiar with focusing on that, uh, what we're contending with here in America is still an ongoing 
influence of modernism, which looks different than what we might call classical liberalism, which is what Machen was dealing with, particularly at the seminary and, and the denomination. But because liberalism, as Machen understood it back in the day, is basically functionally dead. I mean, it's not a it's not a thing anymore. It was a movement that arose and then went away and uh, has been superseded. But what it's been superseded by is no less a product of modernism than liberalism itself was. So I, I see us as as in a in in a larger sphere today mm -hmm. of, of of modernism, the influence of modernism today of which liberalism was just one part, but which we still today are contending against. Um, and so, so much needs, more needs to be said than that. I'll leave it at that, but um, what modernism is, uh, the hairy definition of trying to uh, put that into a, a nice clean, very difficult, if not impossible to do, but, um, I could talk about that some more if you like, but we are definitely not out of the modernism woods at this time in history. Um, so there are going to be commonalities with what Machen was contending against back then versus what we are today. And there's going to be discontinu discontinuities as well. So just to be aware of those dynamics between then and now, 100 years later. For sure. Yeah. And as I... Uh... Um, I, I've had the, the pleasure for uh, a little bit to be teaching at a, a small uh, online school and going through uh, modern uh, literature, history, theology, etc. And um, yeah, talking through, we're, we're just now getting into World War II, so we've talked about uh, um, kind of modernism and now going shifting, uh, of course, uh, into postmodernism. Um, and of course, we, uh, we see how, how one leads uh, to the other, though, of course, they're, they're different, but there's a bunch of, I mean, all these connections, and as you said, perhaps very hard to uh, just define uh, right off the bat. Um, but uh, yeah, to, to maybe jump into discussion uh, of the book, uh, I wanted to even just start uh, here in the first pages, um, because <laughs> there was just so many, as I was reading this book, um, and I've read this book three times now, I think this will be my third time, um, uh, and I was trying to take notes for uh, for this, uh, it would be just like a paragraph. And I'd be like, no, I need to, to make another point on that. I need to have another question here. Because there's just, he's 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 very good. Um, uh, and I'll speak as the English major here for a second. Uh, with his economy of words, he's very good at saying a lot um, by using fewer words than, than perhaps it would take us to say the same thing. Um, which I really, I really enjoy. That's really why, part of why I really enjoy reading him. Um, but he, he, uh, he starts out, um, and I love, uh, how he, um, kind of lays out what's going on. Um, and he says, uh, clear cut, uh, definition of terms and religious matter matters, bold facing of the logical implications of religious views is by many persons regarded as an impious proceeding. May it not discourage contributions to mission boards? May it not hinder the progress of consolidation and pro produce a poor or produce a poor showing in the columns of church statistics? These seem like he's. I mean, to, to boil that down, he's saying, why would we? Why would we get so <clears throat> clear um, and uh, specific in, in the ways that we define theological uh, positions? 
or talk about their logical implications, wouldn't that wouldn't that hurt the funds coming into the church? Wouldn't that hurt people coming into the church um, and the numbers uh, that we see? Uh, and which, of course, uh, he's his his answer to that is is no. We still need to uh, to to make theological positions and 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 define what we mean by certain terms and and try to to hold closely to what the scriptures are saying. Um, but whenever but reading that, like as someone who who lives in the modern age, it's just, these are just two questions that that it seems like all churches are asking, even churches that are purporting to be uh, very evangelical, very conservatively evangelical, or even purportedly reformed. Um, and so I wanted to, uh, maybe we'll start with uh, with Carl, and then we can kind of go around. Um, on my screen, I see Carl, then Will, then Jim uh, make our way around. But uh, yeah, does that sound, ring true to the to the modern church here? Yeah, well, I think that... Um... You know, the points that Machen makes even in, in what you read, but also something that struck out and stuck out to me is really how uh, doctrine, right, truly does matter. Um, doctrine divides, and that's okay to say. I mean, sometimes in people in the modern day and in the modern church struggle with that type of thing, and they want to um, downplay either the definition of doctrine or um, its impact, its role, its importance in the church. Um, but yet the, the, um, the danger of uh, doing so is that it is really either trying to sideswipe or otherwise what, um, what biblical doctrine is all about and the promotion and the maintaining of it. Right. Um, and I see, I see absolutely. I mean, I think that that's true in the modern church. I mean, we see um, one of the things that Machen was fighting against in his time was um, boiling everything, the, the, uh, the plan and the attempt to try to boil everything down to the least common denominator. And as Jim said, not, um, um, you know, ha have uh, things that could be discarded or viewed as non-essentials um, for the sake of some type of feigned unity in the church. Um, but I think that what, um, what one of Machen's strengths here, especially in this first chapter, that the modern church misses is um, the essential nature of biblical doctrine and the teaching of the apostles um, in, uh, in supporting the truth of scripture and, uh, you know, his willingness to stand on that against mm -hmm. others who may object. Um, but, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think Aristotle got it right, talking about how truth is our highest goal and objective, right? Um, I know the scriptures teach clearly. Christ says, you know, thy word is truth. Truth is what we desire. Um, Matthew 12, Christ is clear that he who is not with me is against me. We know that within the faith there is no form of neutrality, right? And so truth in and of itself um, is worthy. Um, and Machen, he's pointing out, he's pointing out the pragmatic Christians, right? He says, look, the things they're going to suffer. Oh, the coffers are going to be drained if you preach and you get argumentative about these things. Let's just, let's stick with unity, right? Well, we know, one, our ultimate goal, as your shirt says, is to glorify God, and we do that by delighting in the truth, first of all. Um, but second of all, I think 
Machen, if you read a little further on page one, and you're right, Caleb, page one is awesome. Um, he even kind of does bring about a prag pragmatism as well. So he says further on, <clears throat> light may seem at times to be an impertinent intruder, but it is always beneficial in the end. The type of religion which rejoices in the pious sound of traditional phrases, regardless of their meaning or shrinks from controversial matters, will never stand amid the shocks of life. So I think he's even going further to say you have the pragmatist stating, oh, look at all the things that were suffer. But he's saying, no, the faith in the church itself will be the thing that suffers if we do not fight for the truth. And so I think he's hitting the heart of it there. Yeah. Amen, Will. Um great observations and you know just to dovetail on all of that uh in the modern the modern period th this is all very much a product of of the modern period okay there is philosophically what's going on and i'm going to give a very short kind of explanation here within the western world the western academic philosophical intelligentsia world of the intelligentsia going on is everybody is sort of riding the Kantian wave right I mean you're you're well now into the beyond the enlightenment at this point right uh, the enlightenment's already had its effects um, Kant has come on the scene Schleiermacher has come on the scene and what you see with both Kant and Schleiermacher is sort of this attempt to repackage Christianity. And part of the reason why they want to repackage Christianity is because the traditional forms of Christianity are no longer intellectually viable. Okay? Um, they are regarded as passe. Uh, it's, it's old, old hat. Uh, the old metaphysical systems that we took for granted during the Middle Ages and even into the period of the Reformation and post-Reformation period uh, are, are now just regarded as, as non-starters when it comes to intellectual theological discourse. And so everything needs to sort of be packaged in order to save Christianity for the Western world. Otherwise, Christianity is going to die a terrible um unceremonial death because it's going to become irrelevant to everybody and so what we need to do hear this what we need to do is make it relevant right <laughs> um that's the project of Kant and Schleiermacher okay is to make Christianity relevant to the times and so uh when you think about uh, Kant wrote a book religion within the bounds of reason alone, okay? And what he did was he went through all of the sort of loci of Christian doctrine and reinterpreted sort of uh, seeking to extract the essence of the doctrine and then repackage that essence in a form that is commensurate with, with modern principles, okay? Philosophical principles in particular. And uh, a more rational, a more reasonable type of Christianity that doesn't depend upon the supernatural and, and um, uh, mystical and mysterious categories. Um, and so when Schleiermacher comes along, of course, he's seeking to do the same thing for the church to try to save the church 
from its what he calls the cultured despisers, right? So you have the cultured elite, the educated elite in, in Europe um, who are despising Christianity for its supernaturalness, its outdatedness, its, um, it, it, it's, it's um, uh, what's the word I'm looking, superstitiousness, et cetera, et cetera. And so the churches are emptying. How do you save the churches? You have to come up with a defense for the faith. How do you come up for a defense for the faith? You repackage the faith in a way that is that is palatable for the modern man. And so, and this is my point to what Machen here is saying. When you operate in this way, when you're when you're extracting the essence of doctrine, you're saying we could repackage it any way we want. Um, as long as we maintain the essence of it, right? And that essence can be whatever you want it to be, basically, right? Uh, but then it gets reinterpreted in modern categories. And so what ends up happening is, uh, is precision of, of language becomes the enemy of this modern project to repackage Christianity, because you're dealing with abstract essences, right? You know, essences of this doctrine or whatever that you're pulling out of its shell and repackaging any way you want, particularly in ways that make modern people content or happy. And so what ends up happening is when people come along and get precise about not only the essence, but the packaging of the doctrine as well, because they believe that what you say about the doctrine communicates either truth or error, right? people like Machen, um, that that's the light that is the enemy of the modern project. And what Machen here is saying is, look, we need to be precise because our God is precise. We need to be careful with our words because God gives us very precise words to communicate truth to us. And without those words, without that packaging, as you were, as it were, you lose <clears throat> Christianity, you can't remove the doctrinal formulation from the truth that it carries and somehow think that the truth is going to continue to be carried, right? Um, <laughs> and so that's why Machen is not only contending for precise words, but he is contending for contending for precise words. Mm -hmm. he, he is a fighter, and that's what you have on page two, right? You know, he talks about this idea of fighting. Uh, the really important things are the things about which men will fight. And the enemy of unbelief, the enemy of liberalism, the enemy of any form of doctrinal heresy is fighting men. What, what heresy, what Satan, what falsehoods want the church to do is to simply be quiet get out of our way, roll over, lay dead, whatever the case may be. But one thing they don't want you to do is to contend for the truth once we're all delivered to the saints. Amen. Yeah, and I'd love the, uh, mm -hmm. uh, how that goes right into his discussion of the, the analogy of, of, uh, of us defending uh, a citadel or a city, um, right, and, and giving up the lower quarter um, and pretend that we're retreating into the keep, and he's like, "No, you've actually just retreated into the fields. You haven't. You haven't. It's not as if you're defending the city anymore at all." Um, 
And uh, so, yeah. And of course, this is what what births uh, some some uh, people to call people that uh, follow Machen his his warrior children, right? Because he he talks in such strong uh, militant language. Um, but uh, but I think it's important. Um, he goes on uh, as we we go on into like page page three, um, and he talks uh, about. Um, I think that this aspect of, of liberalism um, or modernism is definitely something that we can still see um, alive and well today. Uh, he talks about tradition um, being cast out in the name of, of criticism, as criticism being this, this kind of overarching thing that uh, people are just look back at the old ways, they're very critical of it, um, and we can see this um, in, in movements that, that bear that name, right, the higher critical movement uh, was a, a uh, movement uh, stemming out of, of Lutheranism in Germany but eventually spreading to other denominations that uh, uh, was was critical uh, well taking text criticism but then also being uh, very overly critical of uh, of any authenticity authenticity uh, that the church had assumed about the scriptures for a long time um, but uh, um, I wanted to to uh, ask because I could see this uh, being, a, an objection raised here, um, as as Machen seems to be saying, "Hey, all you modern men, uh, you're just critical of, of tradition. Have more faith in tradition." Uh, but then, but then someone might come up to Machen and, and object and say, "Well, you're you're reformed. Weren't the reformers critical of tradition? Didn't they say the same thing just 400 years ago? Uh, how are you any different uh, than that?" Uh, and so I'll toss that question to y'all and we can go around in the same circle. <clears throat> yeah, well, I, I think that um, when the church, you know, looks at the matter of tradition, um, we are doing so um, through the lens of scripture and everything is grounded in scripture, right? So we are not, um, we are not standing on, we're not practicing, we're not seeking to carry on and promote the traditions of men um, that are uh, formed or fashioned apart from Scripture. But <clears throat> to say that we are standing um, upon the, uh, you know, the teachings and the truths of Scripture as passed on by uh, the prophets and the apostles to say that we are standing on the foundations um, that have been declared by Christ himself in the Word. Um, and uh, And... Uh, again, that which is grounded in the Bible, um, then, yeah, we have, of course, no no problem. We should have no problem uh, making such claim and such, such stance and pressing forward accordingly, right? So I think that um, where criticism regarding the tradition largely comes in is where people are uh, tending to point to or grasping at um, things that are man-made and not bible grounded um but um uh and, and clearly i mean any you know we we would have our own criticism we should have our own and, and do have our on our, our our radar on and, and our own ongoing evaluations even within the church um even within the reformed uh tradition reformed faith uh to say to evaluate uh, what we do and how we do it and why we're doing it and and uh and what we're teaching what we're preaching and it, and it, it should all be coming through and being evaluated through scripture so and what 
you know, what isn't in compliance or isn't in accordance with, uh, with scripture then is, is uh, left behind, it's discarded, right? So, um, you know, I think that, I think that the, some of the modern criticisms kind of fall flat when they're really pressed and evaluated in those ways. Mm -hmm. I heard someone once say in the Olympics, it would be fun if like next to Phelps, you put uh, the common average American man so you can really gauge how good the rest of the guys are. So I'll be the common man here swimming next to the two pastors. And I have not much out of Pastor Carl. That was good. Um, I would almost pithily say the Reformed tradition is challenging tradition, <laughs> right? Um, but of course, our principium is a tradition. It's the scriptures. So Carl already addressed that. And so we'd say, yes, tradition. I'm sure Machen would say tradition is helpful. Um, it's a great tool. But ultimately, and we even you know, as we are more sanctified, we even sometimes look at some tradition we were brought up in as we grow. I know I am as a young man, a lot of things I was growing up in. And as I'm being uh, sharpened by the scriptures, I, I even challenge some of my own tradition, of course, because it's the scriptures that shape the tradition. And so there's nothing wrong with tradition, but it always has to take the need of scripture. So yes to what pastor said. <laughs> Yeah, and, and, and yes to what Carl and Will said as well. Um, you know, when you think about sola scriptura um, as our, our principle of reformation, um, you know, there is, without sola scriptura, there is no reformation. I mean, it's that simple. I mean, you've got the other solas that are important, but it all begins with sola scriptura. It really does. Uh, everything else falls out of that. Um, there's also um, Semper Reformanda, too, right? Always reforming. Uh, we are reformed, and we are always reforming, uh, at least in the ideal. We understand that there are some who try to advance the reformed tradition and actually set it back 500 years. Uh, that that can happen if we make errors, if we if we are exploring the scriptures and we think we have something new or different to say than what has already been said. Um, it, it could be that it is a true advancement. It's a true helpful insight, and it really helps the church to clarify its its doctrine and and to advance the cause of biblical Christianity. Uh, it can also be the case that such an insight is wrong and is erroneous and actually would set the church back. And how do we tell the difference? Well, again, the standard by which we tell the difference is scripture alone. And we need to, the church needs to work through those issues and debate them. And that's happened here in the Presbyterian church on this side of the Atlantic. Um, we have we have changed, we have altered, we have edited our confessional standards. Uh, the most uh, prominent ready um, at hand example is the removal of the establishmentarian clause in chapter 23 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, I don't think that there is a man here who would say that they would want President Joe Biden calling 
meetings of the General Assembly of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, no less sitting in on those assemblies and and um, as the moderator of the OPC, not that he would want to do that, but um, certainly wouldn't want to give him the okay to do that either. Uh, so that establishmentarian clause that was removed from the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, I would view as an advancement. I know not all of our brothers see it that way. Uh, there is still uh, resident establishmentarians among Presbyterians, but uh, I think that we made we made the right move in in the removal of of that. So there was an example of the Reformed faith becoming more and more reformed. And if you read uh, the opening, the first volume of Chad Van Dixhorn's uh, five volume set on the Westminster Assembly, uh, there he's talking about reforming the Reformation and his whole argument and the, the, the pinnacle of his scholarship, which is absolutely remarkable, is to show the way that the rest, uh, the, the way in which the Westminster Assembly uh, deliberating together and with one another, uh, refined and perfected, and in some instances rejected some of the traditions that were handed down to them from the 16th century uh, into the 17th century, and and bringing clarity and precision uh, to to Christian doctrine. So um, there's an example as well, I think, where. Uh, where reformation is important. So yeah, again, I mean, Machen is doing this very thing. He's he's wanting to say, listen, you know, tradition is helpful and all of that. We're not about tradition just for tradition's sake, right? We're not conservative just for the sake of being conservative. Um, if we're conservative for the sake of being conservative, we're actually much more liberal than we think we are, okay? Mm -hmm. Uh, because we don't seek to join a movement. We don't seek to sort of put a badge on ourselves, a label on ourselves, and walk around with it with pride. No. What the Christian is called to do is fidelity to Jesus Christ and his word, right? So if we are called conservative or traditionalist or whatever the case may be, whatever label uh, is there, it's not for the sake of the label, but the label is intended and here we would say we own the label, label if, it, if it means that we are absolutely captured by the word of God alone. Uh, because remember, Roman Catholics are traditionalists too. Um, and the world between us and Rome is, is very, very vast, right? Um, and absolute really even. Um, so uh, we don't want to be traditionalist for traditionalist sake, but we are uh, traditionalists, if by that you mean we're committed to sticking faithfully by God's mm -hmm. grace and the illuminating ministry of the Spirit uh, to the Word of God alone. Amen. Yeah, yeah we're okay uh, being called fundamentalists with Machen, right? If <laughs> fundamentalist is, uh, you know, putting us in those types of categories. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. And it's, uh, and I wanted to, that's a, uh, actually made me think of a, uh, another question to pose and kind of dovetailing off of the, the two conversations we just had, um, which is speaking of the, the Westminster Confession, uh, this is something that uh, uh, I've, I've talked to many people that are, I guess, what we might call uh, bare Calvinists or um, 
a lot of people coming out of the more young, restless, and reformed uh, movement who will, will look at the Westminster Confession and say, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm five points. I, I believe in total depravity, um, in predestination, etc. Um, but, uh, but no, I don't, I, the Westminster Confession, man, that's too thick. That's too, there's too much there. That's really detailed. That's really focused in on all these things. And no, I wouldn't have my church hold to something that detailed. I wouldn't, uh, like, come on, man, we, we gotta have, we have gotta have a bigger umbrella here. Right. Um, and that's sometimes what I hear, uh, from people. Uh, so regardless of, of, uh, of, of whether or not, uh, I mean, I, we're, we're all here, um, very reformed and very committed to confessions, but, but what would you say to someone who's afraid that, uh, that the Westminster confession just gets way too nitty gritty, way too down into the, the details um, and defining some of this and that that would really either bar people from the church or be too divisive or something like that. For, for me, I would, I would want to reframe a, a good understanding of what the confession is. I mean, the confession is a very thorough, but clear and concise statement of faith. It's a, it's, it's a summary of the truths of scripture. And so, you know, I would encourage, um, you know, such a person who may have doubts or questions or skepticisms or, or, or maybe is, is prepared to make such a rejection of the, of the document. And granted, it's a, it's a man-made, it's not, it's not inerrant, right? It's not inspired, but it is a good summary. And, um, you know, what, what the church has found to be um, a, a faithful teaching of scripture. And so it, it needs to be um, studied and embraced as such. Um, you know, it's, um, it, it is one of the standards of our church. And, um, and if, if my second question, I guess, to them would be, um, you know, what in it would, um, would they say is not in accordance with scripture? Right. Or what in it is not a, a faithful um, statement of faith uh, in the, what Scripture teaches us um, and to encourage, I think, a, a um, not only a reconsideration, but just a, a point of evaluation on that type of basis and hopefully then to embrace it as being a a, a helpful and a uh, and a truthful uh, statement and summary of the faith. Um, so that's that's how I would respond. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, Coach Christ, he talks about the two tables of law and says, you know, um, and he says how the whole law is fulfilled in these. And he comes back to this idea of people say, love God, love others, right? So I've had people say, hey, we don't need to worry about the law. We need to worry about loving God and loving others. And then I say, okay, yes. Um, but how do you do that? That's the whole point, right? We say, where people argue today is, well, that's not loving. Someone says, no, it is loving. And it's not loving to reprimand someone. It's not loving to call out false teachers. It's not loving to do this or that. Because we haven't defined what love is. But on your, you know, your five points on your church website, your five values, it just says, we value love, right? And so... I think that's where you kind of get, you have a little bit of postmodernism creeping in, whether you want it to or not. And that's where this idea of liberalism can creep in, 
a little bit as well. And I would hate to reference the first page again, but he even he talks about how uh, um, people uh, like to fight these ideas of in these conditions of low visibility, right? And like, don't get specific, don't do that. Let's let's fight in the you know, state general to where we can have unity, right? Unity is the important thing, unity and loving each other. And then of course the question that's begged then is, okay, unity around what, right? So that's important. Unity in itself is not um, a value. There's nothing of that's valuable or good about the idea of unity because you can unify around a satanic cult and it's not good, right? And so that's this idea of, I mean, that's where the Catholic Church has drifted, not that it was ever Christian, but it's getting even worse. And this idea of um, these assemblies, the Pope's calling and just wants to unify everything very um, universalistic. I mean, that's where we see the, the Rob Bells and stuff coming forward in today because people are so attracted to this idea of unity and universalism and let's keep things general because the bigger the umbrella, the more people are under it. And as soon as you start getting specific and saying, no, this is who Jesus is, all of a sudden the gate just got a little bit more narrow, right? And that hurts people's feelings. You say, oh no, Jesus isn't here. The Bible sets the parameters and God, the Bible sets the parameters here and here. This is who God is. We don't understand everything about him. We don't understand the hypostatic union perfectly, but we know it's not outside of this. And people get offended by that because that's, again, what liberalism and modernism and really postmodernism goes into is uh, they don't like boundaries. But that's what the Bible gives us. It gives us boundaries. And so and that's a good thing. And to the, um, to the healthy Christian, we say yes and amen. And we love good boundaries because <laughs> we oh. want to be restrained by God's word. Um, but yeah. Well, yeah, no, I think that's great. Well, and I think, I think the confession helps us with those boundaries, right? Too, and gives us um, uh, gives us uh, a lot of help as Christians um, as we're standing on the doctrines and the truths that it summarizes and it teaches, um, and and all the while, you know, as uh, Caleb you mentioned earlier that you know they may say, well. I'm a five-point Calvinist. I mean, I, I agree with all the points and the doctrines of grace. Okay, great. Those are good guides and and uh, good teachings that you're standing on and doctrines regarding soteriology. That's wonderful. But um, also, um, you, you know, the the to basically embrace those. Um, you know, look at the confession and consider it in similar ways, right? That this is a this is a helpful um, document that is a guide and a and a um, and, and provides us those uh, those teachings that are biblical, uh, full of scripture references to support the statements that are made, um, right? And that therefore. Um, as as we're uh, studying and standing on the truths of scriptures as are reflected in the confession and summarized in the confession, um, then um, you know we're moving forward and able to uh, repel um, uh, false doctrines, right? And to uh, to be able to more easily identify um, them, you know, versus you know if we didn't have such a uh, a helpful and detailed and uh, yet wonderful summary document to to utilize uh, you know similar arguments um 
with uh, you know having the creeds and the historic creeds and um, and whatnot as well. I think. For sure, yeah. I think there's a. Um, I mean, this is what the church has been doing since since day one. Uh, we don't know when, how early the something like the Apostles' Creed came about. We know it was very early, um, but then we look at the councils uh, in the uh, fourth century um, and see. Uh, I mean, you look at a statement like the Nicene Creed, um, and these are our points that. Uh, are very near and dear to the church at large and have been for uh, going on 2,000 years. So it's a, uh, um, when we look at the, the reformers and what they did uh, at Westminster, um, they're, they're doing what, what Christians have been doing uh, for, for a very long, very long time um, and doing so in the heat uh, of the Reformation, right? During the, doing so uh, a generation after um, I mean, the Catholic Church has, has basically declared war on the likes of Calvin and, and Luther and, and people like that. Um, and so just even further defining uh, in more clarity what the scriptures say, because those things are under direct attack um, and, and need uh, uh, the, uh, the church to defend them, as, as she's always called to do, to defend that hope that, that, uh, that Christ has given her. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I think that, uh, though, though for, for most modern people, uh, to, uh, instead of having that one page, uh, church website, uh, statement of faith, uh, we hand them a book that might seem intimidating. Um, but, uh, it is, it is, is really more helpful, uh, than intimidating. Um, and I always, I'll, my, my opening pitch normally when I hand someone a confession is always to open it up and say, yo, you see this little part, that's the confession. And then you see this part here. Those are the, the scripture references that they're using to, uh, to show you where they got, uh, this doctrine, uh, to show you that it's, that it is indeed a secondary standard. It is not purporting to be, um, uh, the arbiter of truth, the principium, if we want to use the, uh, the philosophical phrase, the. Uh, the standard for truth that is uh, being defined by the ultimate standard of truth, which is the Word of God, um, which, um, which most evangelical churches hopefully uh, can get behind such a notion. Um, to to kind of keep going, or to hopefully wrap wrap things up here, we're, we're coming up on an hour here, so I want to be respectful of, of time. Uh, but uh, I did want to um, hit on this idea that he talks about in, on page four, it's page four. Um, on page four, he basically kind of lays out, um, you may have heard of, of separation of church and state, but he, he kind of lays out separation of church uh, and science. And I know Kant has already come up uh, in this conversation, uh, and he obviously had a lot to do with the notion of separating science um, and, and faith. Um, but there's, in this paragraph here on page four, he talks about um, the uh, kind of the, the questions that are answered by, by science and the scientific endeavors um, and uh, those questions that are answered by faith and theology and how those two things, that, that, those shouldn't ever really conflict. We don't need to, to worry that they would ever conflict. So it's okay to go to science 
and what science comes up with regarding this or that or the other thing. Um, and don't worry, because that's science. And then when you go to church, here's here's faith, here's theology, here's this other thing. Um, I, I think it was Schaefer that called it the upper and lower stories. Um, but uh, but then I love how he he brings that uh, to the first century Christian. What would a first or second century Christian say if you came to him and said, uh, "What what uh, we we have this, this scientific uh, historian who who says that the the Christ that you worship um, that." He really, he really didn't exist. Um, it, it's not really a historical fact. Uh, but you still believe in the essence of your religion, right? I mean, you believe in those more essential faith matters, those theological matters. And and he's like, well, no, the first first century Christian would be like, what? No. I mean, there's not this this very clear divide for us like that, um, as though these two fields uh, never, never meet. Um, oh. So um, I wanted to kind of wrap up our discussion here, maybe talking about... Because um, I think that modernistic divide between science matters and faith matters still exists in, in many minds today. Um, I was even, when I was in uh, school uh, at, at ACU, I, had, I went to an Eastern Orthodox uh, um, chapel that was led by one of the, uh, an Eastern Orthodox priest. Um, and you would think this, which, which should be uh, very far on, on the, the right in many senses of, in theology at least, uh, or some forms of theology, uh, that this guy, a steep in tradition, would say, of course we don't believe in evolution, of course we don't believe in uh, all of these other uh, kind of scientific things. Uh, we believe in the scriptures. But no, he told me, no, the scriptures only talk about faith matters. They don't talk about, they don't talk about science. They don't talk about all of those things. So don't worry, you can be as, you don't have to believe in the historical Adam. That's that's not a, a son of faith thing. That's a science thing, um, which which shocked me uh, as a, a senior in college. Uh, but so it, just to, just to go to show that that those two stories um, are are still very much in the alive in the thinking of people that claim to be uh, learned clergy um, and and churches that claim to be steeped in tradition. Um, so and we can start with Carl. But how how would we? Uh, how how we how do we see that in, in this world, and how do we kind of combat that that Kantian divide um, in in the modern world as the church? I'll let Jim jump in here first. Oh yeah, Jim Jim skipped out <laughs> on the last question, so. All right, all right. yeah. Well, I, I was looking forward to what Carl had to say, but um, yeah, I think you know th this is what this is what everything after Kant has allowed us to do is to confirm and affirm uh, two opposite things at the same time. Um, and uh, this is also known as dialectic, dialecticism, okay, or dialectical theology or just dialectical ways of thinking um, where you affirm two polar opposites at the same time, because each of those opposite poles have their own particular respective spheres. And as long as they're consistent within their own spheres, they don't need to be consistent with one another. Um, that's what Kant has given us by separating faith and science and, and epistemology and the phenomenal and numinal realms and the whole nine yards, right? It's all about sort of this dualism that he introduces um, and it brings about certain dialectical ways of thinking. So on the one hand, what does faith say? 
Well, faith says that Adam was the first man created from the dust of the earth. Okay. Uh, what does science say? Well, science says that Adam or man uh, was evolved through a long process of evolution. Okay. Uh, so what, which one do you believe? Well, as a, uh, as a Christian and as a one who reads my Bible by faith, I believe that Adam is the first of the human race. But as a modern person, um, intellectually engaged in modern trends and science, I believe that Adam um, descended by way of a long process of, of, of biological evolution. Um, and as Hegel would say, that's the glorious contradiction. You know, we just sort of revel in it until sometime when the thesis and antithesis arises to a new synthesis and we get a new insight into how those two somehow hold together. Um, that's the type of craziness that we have found ourselves in since at least the time of Kant probably goes back before then, right? Um, but that's the type of craziness that we find ourselves in where there is this, this glorious having your cake and eating it too um, kind of thing going on where you could be a Christian, but you could also at the same time uh, be self-identified as a homosexual, right? Um, you could be, um, you could be any number of things at the same time and even if they contradict one another, that's okay. In fact, all the better, all the more profound. How profound is that, that my religion is so, so deep and so wide and so inclusive and, and that it can embrace at the same time two opposite things, right? Um, that's the MO of what we're dealing with today and you see it in the churches and you see it in politics and culture and society at large i mean it's everywhere um so anyway that's the way i see it you think well i always want to talk today okay <laughs> <laughs> well i'm i'm not a i'd call hegel the the great compromiser just trying to bring it all together um, I mean, I don't, my mind drifts more towards where here in this section, pages three through seven or not. I mean, he kind of tends to address this idea of progressivism, which we know is very inseparable from what we have in modern day liberalism, right? And on page three, he talks about, um, how indeed dependence of any institution upon the past is sometimes even regarded as furnishing a presumption, not in favor of it, but against it. So many convictions had to be abandoned that men sometimes come to believe that all convictions must go. So they say, oh, there's so many things we've perhaps scientifically disproven on in the past. Well, we have the, the great skeptics out there that want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, well, if it's old, it's got to go. Um, and he even says, you know, if for such an attitude to be justifiable, then no institution is faced by a stronger hostile presumption than the institution of the Christian religion. Um, 
And then on page four, I know I'm just quoting him a little bit here, but I like all this stuff I underlined. He said, it's no wonder that um, that that appeal is being criticized today for the writers of the books in question were no doubt men of their own age whose outlook upon the material world judged by modern standards must have had um, have been the crudest and most elementary kind. So it's almost this idea of progressive epistemology, um, almost like <laughs> with a feminist standpoint, a standpoint epistemology, but rather than um, rather than based in some sort of Marxist idea of identity, your standpoint is based in history, where where you are in history gives you more of this epistemological hierarchy than those who came before you. And people want to they, they try to do that. I mean, sometimes with science and we have to remember that a lot of the great scientists throughout history that made some of the greatest um, progress were Christians, right? And we, we can't throw that out. We, we, never, we don't want to discredit them. Um, but we also know, if we're talking epistemology, that science can't give you any real basis of why or truth. All it, I mean, we just know it's just pure um, empiricism, right? So it, it can't tell you why things are or how they will be. It can just say what happened. And that's all science is. We act like science is some sort of religion, some great, um, some great truth provided that's transcendental in some way. When all it really is, is, is just an observation. This happened. This happened. This happened. Therefore, these things will probably happen in the future. And you base your entire life around that. Um, and what's interesting is as we, we make these, this, this progress, it, it even shows this, the whole liberalism in itself fails because um, you, you're never right because the U of five years ago is canceled and the U of today is the one that um, subsists. I think of um, even how the, the, those trying to credit Ruth Bader Ginsburg in her, in her um, defense of women's right to abortion, um, when they were public republishing her, her opinions, um, they were trying to edit out um, all of her feminine pronouns to use, you know, terms like birthing people and more gender neutral pronouns, because even the most progressive woman of the time writing one of the most heinous um, opinions on the murder of millions today, she is a conservative. Or we have the great feminist J.R. Rowling, who is a great feminist of her time, but now she's criticized for saying, oh, you know, a man's a man and a woman's a woman. And so even even liberals can't really they don't have any form of truth because their truth is always changing. Right. Um, yeah. And that's the same thing with science. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. science is I mean, Thomas Kuhn has taught us this. Right. You know, the, the whole principle of scientific revolutions where where you have paradigms um, and then those paradigms persist for a time until a new paradigm replaces it. Um, right. And science is, uh, you know, the kind of thing that is constantly changing and evolving, as it were, uh, or devolving, as the case may be in some instances. But um, and so not even science itself is a transcendent truth that can become a standard by which we judge all epistemological questions. Um, it's just. It's just not, it can't be, it's always changing, but there's only one thing 
that does not change, which could be that transcendent standard by which we judge all matters of epistemology, ethics, or metaphysics for that matter, and that's God's word. Um, only that can be the final arbiter of all questions of truth uh, because it's eternal, it's unchangeable, it's given once and for all. And so, um, you know, and, and this kind of goes back to the earlier question, right? Yeah, it's true, you know, the Bible is not a science textbook. Um, that's a no-brainer for us to say, uh, but it's not as if that the Bible has nothing to say about the things about which science is concerned about, um, namely the created order, uh, namely history, namely um, observation and uh, principles of, of knowing. Uh, the Bible speaks to all these matters. And so where the Bible uh, speaks to matters, however tangential, that impose themselves upon science, there is a truth about which science itself must bow the knee. Um, and of course, you know, in, in the realm of science, um, science is observing and uh, make drawing conclusions about all manner of things about which the Bible itself does not seek to speak or address. And I think in those particular matter matters, um, science has a certain amount of liberty and freedom uh, to carry out its task, um, never in a neutral way, but in a way that addresses topics that the Bible itself does not address. I mean, the Bible in one sense says, says the most important things about everything. But the Bible also, at the same time, doesn't say everything about everything, okay? So there are things about which philosophers and scientists and sociologists and psychologists um, are able to study and to explore and to discover. Um, but all of it, of course, has to bow the knee to, to the Lord um, as he reveals himself in Scripture in so much as those scriptures touch upon the matters that they're studying. Mm -hmm. For sure. Carl? And for me, I, I, I see, um, I appreciate y'all's words and, uh, and thoughts on that. I see, you know, faith um, and science. Uh, you know, we talked, Jim talked early on about the kind of the drastic dualism that, um, you know, has been uh, tried to be promoted. And, but I see that, that faith, that, that our faith is actually um, built up and strengthened um, as we see uh, God's revelation, right? And, and in general revelation, like Jim was speaking of, of creation, this is God's world. We, he created it, he ordered it. Um, we're here studying it, right? Um, we're learning from it, uh, learning about it, right? Um, as and as He's designed it, Scripture guides us and, and directs us in those things. Um, I think there are many, many instances and occasion where um, science and scientific findings have validated, right, the teachings of Scripture, um, whether it be you know um, uh, historical events, locations, people, um, other things like that, science, um, you know, when it's done rightly and well can, 
um, can help us to learn different aspects and, and, and different things about um, God's world. So, um, you know, I see that as being an important thing. Um, it, you're right. I mean, there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of different people who conduct different scientific experiments and movements in science, and that's that's nothing new. Um, but um, I think that those are some things that you, you, there are some helpful uh, connections there. Uh, so, anyhow, for sure, yeah. Um... Maybe just to, to wrap this up, we'll, we'll go around once more as we uh, as we uh, wrap everything up here. This chapter kind of ends. Um, I know we skipped quite a bit as we kind of got up, caught up in those first first few pages, um, but but Machen uh, takes us through uh, how the the pragmatism that he spoke of uh, has has plagued uh, the modern man um, and. Uh, then kind of ends everything by kind of saying, uh, do you think you think that liberalism is going to save you from this? You think that Christian, that liberal Christianity is really going to save you from this? And he says, no, what's really going to save you from this is, is true biblical Christianity, Christianity that's uncompromising. Um, and that is, uh, um, that is really what's going to get us through this. And so then he's going to go on and we'll go into it next, next time as we talk about chapter two. Um, and he gets into doctrine and, and Christ. He's going to show us uh, the points of departure um, between liberalism uh, and Christianity. Um, so, uh, but uh, yeah, I just want to, to gather everyone's final thoughts here before we uh, we sign off um, on uh, how how is this uh, all the more important for us uh, to dive into uh, today. And we'll go um, ahead and start. Sorry. Yeah, Carl, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, no, sure. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll actually start first this time. Yeah. All right. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I guess my final thoughts would be um, that uh, the true, um, uh, true biblical teaching, I mean, it's, it's essential that we're standing on the truths of Scripture, especially today, um, to uh, not only give a good defense of the faith, not only to teach and promote um, the truths about Christ about and about God and how he's revealed himself to us in Scripture and all of the other truths of Scripture, um, but it's to bring also, it's to shine light and to bring clarity to, uh, to the darkness that is around us. And um, even that which at times has crept into the church, right, which is one of Machen's uh, addresses and arguments here. And so we're shining light within, we're shining light without, um, we're exposing what needs to be exposed, we're standing, um, and, and we're, we're, we're seeking to, by the grace of God, run the race well and to fight the good fight. And, uh, and to not be ashamed of that. And it is, it's essential that we do that because we cannot, we cannot back down. We cannot seek to kind of get under the all-inclusive umbrellas. Um, we, we can't do that and be uh, sincere and, um, and uphold our obligations to Christ. Um, so um, 
yeah, this, this is the only way. This is the this is the only uh, charge that we have before us, and so therefore we we need to do so boldly and well, um, praying that the Lord will bless and uh, that He will receive the glory. Um, anyhow, yeah, it's vitally important today, um, as it was in previous generations. Mm-hmm. And I mean, <clears throat> as Paul tells tells Timothy to, to guard what has been faithfully entrusted to you, we knowing, knowing that's the true saving gospel, um, and then furthermore telling him to, um, to call out false gospels, I mean, that's the whole point, right? Um, as Pastor Cassidy brought up this, at the very beginning of this, Machen doesn't name his book, um, you know, Christianity and liberal Christianity, or conservative Christianity and liberal Christianity. He calls it Christianity and liberalism right we have um this sort of uh antithetical parallel going on here he's like it's not conjuncting the two things together as if they're in the same sphere but he's really separating them and differentiating them um and so i think machin as he goes further in the book he he does i really appreciate he doesn't um i think our, our mind can go and to everyone, liberal might mean something. We use that term so ubiquitously. Liberal might mean something a little bit different to everyone else. So, um, it's really anyone who's the left of us is a liberal. <laughs> and I think he does a good job of not ad hominem, um, ad hominem in. And I think he recognizes that you know there are people who have they've sipped the Kool Aid a little bit, but we still know that they need to be called out as brothers, right? There are some people who they start to fall in these traps, and we know who those are. And I can think of several pastors who you can think is like, you're sipping the Kool-Aid a little bit. Um, I'm still going to speak of you as a brother. Um, but, you know, it's a, there's a dangerous, dangerous road you're going down. And we don't know where that could turn out. Um, but ultimately, what he's really addressing is the whole, the whole false, those who are buying into the false gospel, right? Because um, I guess he talked about even before modernism, he even talks about the root of naturalism and, um in uh, liberalism and this idea of, I mean, and this is where it comes away. You know, it, it's wanting God, ultimately it's wanting God out of the picture. There is, there is no um, creative power of God in anything that exists, but it is all natural. Right. And so if your liberalism is, is coming from that, um, you cannot say you are a Christian, you know, liberal, it tries to separate miracles or even seeing it start to creep in the church with, um, different views on the historic Jesus and the new perspective of Paul and all these sorts of things where it's kind of, it's the age of, well, did God really said, did he really say that? Like, yes, he said so in his gospels. Um, but it's starting to question these things and try to put them in some sort of modern, something that, like, uh, like Jim was saying, it's trying to modernize, modernize these things. And so <clears throat> it'll be really, helpful as we go on and what's the purpose it's because we're calling people out of a false gospel like i said we know people you know not everyone who has some liberal worldviews doesn't mean that they're inherently not a christian but uh you need when you start to as we go through you know read this book and you start to see i believe some of these things that you should start to question how far back has your faith gone what is your faith in um what are you desiring um and so i think that's why it's important. I mean, that's the whole beauty, the whole thesis of it, right? Saying that this thing that we thought we have, oh, you know, there's just those a little bit to the left and there's those a little bit to the right um, in the church. And, you know, we all just need to, to get along. And he's saying, no, there are issues on which we're not called to get along, but we are called to um, divide over 
and, and do that righteously. And, and the way that he's going to define liberalism is he's drawing those borders. And of course, the amazing thing is he wrote this a, a whole century ago at this point. <laughs> and we can only see just like Caleb and I, when we, when we had a study going over the abolition of man and reading Lewis, also written almost 100 years ago, we were seeing the same thing. That, man, they got it right. And I'm so sad that they got it right. But they called it and it happened. Um, way before their time. And so it shows a lot of forethought, but yeah, I think yeah, it's because of the gospel and we fight for the integrity of the gospel. And that's why we're going to be critical over these things. It's not just um, the all mill post mill discussion. This is, this is actually deserves some putting your gloves on. Can you imagine if in Machen's day, he heard someone uh, come up to him and say, we need to embrace the non-binary, you know, like <laughs> you know, what what Machen is doing is it's all binary, right? Um, he is saying a not a, and he's lining them up in the most lucid way possible. This is Christianity. This is not. <laughs> you know, this, they say the opposite of each other. There's A and not A here. So the conclusion is, after you go through all of the doctrines, is that Christ, uh, liberalism is not a, a valid uh, form or alternate um, manifestation of the Christian faith of the Christian religion. It's a wholly different religion altogether. Um, it's not a, uh, if Christianity is a liberalism is not a, and that is exact. I mean, just, you know, people who think that sound sounds harsh, uh, go back and read Kant's religion within the bounds of reason alone. He takes loci by loci of doctrine and he turns it all into the very opposite of what it was. What at one time was a supernatural doctrine or a doctrine that was understood supernaturalistically is then understood naturalistically so as to fit the primacy of morals, morality, which is, you know, Kant's um, uh, notion of, of the imperative, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so the categorical imperative. And so, you know, when when morals becomes the base of our faith and doctrine has to somehow fit within the bounds of morals, rather than as we understand it, doctrine is our base and our morals flow from it. You've got two different religions going in different directions. Um, completely 180 degrees. And that's about as binary as, as it comes. And so um, that's kind of my takeaway is just the way in which Machen uses crystal clear, lucid thinking, articulation, and reasoning in order to highlight these, these two binaries. And, and liberals absolutely hated him for it because it exposed them to the light. It showed them 
as being the counterfeit that they are um, in terms of their doctrine. And, and it just was, it was devastating to their cause, but they wouldn't give it up because they more than drank the Kool-Aid. They, they became intoxicated with it um, and they wouldn't give it up. They were addicted to it. Mm -hmm. Each preacher. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, there's a, I think there's going to be a lot uh, as we dive in here. This is the shortest chapter. Um, so the fact that uh, I only got to half the questions I got written down and we're uh, wrapping up here means that we'll have plenty to discuss as we go forward into the other chapters. So um, I hope uh, y'all enjoyed our discussion today. Um, thank you so much, uh, Will and Jim, for, for joining us. Um, and uh, we are looking forward to plenty of discussion uh, in the future. Um, but in the meantime, for all you listeners at home, uh, if you're reading right along, uh, read uh, chapter two for next time, and we'll start talking about doctrine as we ask the key question that I think Jim may have already kind of given us a preemptive answer to, which is, is Christianity uh, namely a doctrine or a way of life? Um, because liberalism and Christianity are going to answer that question uh, differently um, as we look into that chapter. So um, I hope you all have a wonderful uh, night, a wonderful week, and we will catch you all next time. Thank you all for joining us, and we'll see you all then.